Thank you for listening to Men Talk Ubuntu podcast and being a valued member of our community. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube, Instagram, and other social media now for access to our latest updates. DM us and let us know what your mental health is on a scale of one to five. Take care. It's called, this is what I wrote when I got off the phone to crisis line at two in the morning. I wrote solidly till five, six in the morning and phoned her back with it. This is what I wrote. This is when I needed hope. This is a hopeless me. Singing in the dark. I'm singing in the dark with eyes shut tightly to keep myself sane and beseech the almighty. Sometimes my voice falters and the tears cascade as I face a myriad of mistakes that I have made. If I can't love today, then maybe tomorrow, juggling the positives to banish my sorrow. The chorus may depress you if you feel it and connect with sentiments of isolation, loneliness and regret. For mine is the endless night with very little reprieve and I've no more tricks and nothing up my sleeve. Naked as at birth, whilst friends remain clothed, vulnerable and frightened on this long and winding road. Am I singing to be heard or to undermine my dread? of a fate far worse than ending up dead. Vocally exquisite in the pains of the night. It's the only way I can see of putting things right. So come, come morning, I promise a fresh start of honouring this life to which I'm a part. I'll give rather than take uplift not condemn and light up the world with my songs and a pen so please oh universe give me a chance i've had my karma now allow me to dance then i'll take my bow as the curtain falls to await the judgment of booze or applause if the crowd cry encore, then I'll sing throughout the day, sweetly and sublimely for as long as you say. And I won't require payment, praise or delight, just a chance to dream, not sing throughout the night. That was me hopeless, but I found hope in the end of it. Oh, I love how the relationship you've had with the pen from young and you've reignited that passion and conceived all these poetic children and you still continue to. I would really love to know, you know, through all of that and just hearing that one thing that really stood out to me and I really want to ask is even though you have, you know, a never ending loving relationship with the pen, how do you love yourself and yourself in every single way, the person you are spiritually, mentally, everything? Well, I mean, when I say mental health, I had a diagnosis. I see it as a spiritual experience lasting decades. I don't see it as a health issue. But in terms of mental health, I am my worst critic. I, I, have, I have an internal dialogue, which I can stop at will now. I've learned to, I had to learn to, because my thoughts were so dark in hospital. I had to force myself to learn to meditate because the things I was thinking were going to happen to me when I woke up were not nice. So I had to learn to stop my internal dialogue, not through going to meditation lessons, just to survive. 
So when my thoughts get bad, I can stop them at will. I can just put a stop on them. But when they nag me, they nag me about everything, but they don't nag me about my poetry so much. I mean, even my ego seems to support my poetry because lots of 20-year-old girls hug me when I read one out, so my ego even likes it now. So he's on my side. Um, so other than that, I mean, I beat myself up about my intentions towards people. And the, the fact that I can, because I'm quite clever, I can manipulate situations. And whilst I try not to, sometimes it's too tempting to, you know, it's too tempting to not manipulate the situation for your advantage. And like you say, because I've got quite a lot of experience of things, I, I can manipulate when I want to. I'd rather be sincere, honest, compassionate and all those things and manipulative and divisive. So, just, I mean, everyone, like I said earlier, everyone's capable of everything. So whilst in your thought, your thoughts sometimes don't know the difference between when you're contemplating an action and when you've done it. So when you think back, when you think back later on, you think, when you thought, should I hit him? You're actually thinking, I hit him. Even though it was just a thought, I want to hit him. So it kind of confuses you. And then you think you're violent because you think you, you did something violent when actually it was just a violent thought. Then you can beat yourself up about being violent and being aggressive and all. And it's, I mean, it's not unique to me, it's everyone. So it's just part of the human condition. If something's part of the human condition, you just have to accept it and try and embrace it if you can. Well, follow that. I can, can relate. I can, I can definitely also see how that, in that critical voice, like you say, is a powerful agent who is working for you and also against you, yeah. depending on perhaps the outcome or how things go. And it's from what you were just describing, brought that John Milton, you know, who wrote Paradise Lost yeah. and Paradise Regained, that there's that saying of the mind is a terrible place in itself and it can make a heaven of hell and a hell of heaven. Yeah. Right? what you were describing there whatever reason brought that to mind because even though you, you're speaking about i feel like these you've had to honestly confront yourself and you've had to basically look in the mirror and sometimes go i don't like that side of me i am clever i can manipulate situations but i've had two near-death experiences. I've had to have a very honest and real look at myself yeah. and what I want my life to be like, the legacy I want to yeah. leave, which is where this idea of I want to leave hope and I want to leave these beautiful works that actually impact other people. And I get to see that now. And I get the yeah. good ego view in the sense of, I can see that it's made a good difference to someone. Yeah. It wasn't for selfish reasons. It wasn't for a stroke of my own, you know, ego. sense of well-being yeah. and ego, yes. And and yet I still want to hear a little bit more about how you as Steve love yourself. And I don't I don't even know if I do love myself. I mean I, I mean the concept of loving yourself to me, gets mixed up in the concept of self-worship, which I avoid, obviously, because that's narcissism. And basically, I think that narcissism is a core... Narcissism and racism, which are connected in a way, are all... They're the main causes of all the ills on this planet. Take away narcissism and racism, and we'd be having a pretty good time. But I think, so... It's a little less, a little more basic than that. Like what I'm after, what I'm thinking, it's just this purely 
you've rolled with the punches. Yeah. You know, you've taken things as they come and you've come out of it well on the other side. And I'm just here going, man. How do you what, she's seen through it. Oh, yeah, part of it. You know, like, <laughs> there's a lot of, I mean, I know you get some solace from the poetry. I know it, it, it gives you something. I'm just trying to see. Resilience. Yeah. He, he, I, 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 when I saw my, psychi my psychologist, when I was at my worst and I, I'd just come out, I just, I was about to go into hospital and she saw me for about six months every week and she wrote me a letter at the end and she said I was incredibly resilient. So to get through life and not just operate in survival mode, you have to be pretty resilient. You have to bounce back. You have to get up. You can't, you know, as I say to people, you don't know what's around the corner. No one does. That's a miraculous of life. That's the beauty of life. It's all totally unpredictable. I mean, all them sci-fi magazines predicting we'd all be in hover planes and in roads in the sky and people walking on ice skates and all this sort of nonsense. You just can't predict it. It's too unpredictable. So on that basis, you you you, you just got you it's a pure amazingness that keeps you going. The pure interest and it keeps you interested in life. Unless you really brutalize. I mean, I can I can sit in a coffee bar and just stare at a tree and be entranced by it for 10 minutes, just looking at the shadows and the leaves instead of the leaves. And I can watch a bird interacting with a squirrel. And that will fascinate me more than television. And it, when the squirrel relates to the blackbird and the blackbird chases the squirrel for a laugh, not for food, that gives me a feeling of such joy that a television or radio programme couldn't. So it's really just a shit. I mean, life, life may be shit. I mean, that's, that's up for debate. But it may be shit, but one thing it certainly is, it's absolutely fucking beautiful. The universe is the most incredible, knowable, beautiful place to be on this earth in this important time of ever. To be on the planet that's beautiful, even though we're killing it. It's, it's just a privilege. I could have been born a slug and someone pouring salt on me in a garden. I'm not. I'm a human being in a European well-to-do country. In some ways, I have no right to complain, spiritually at least, politically maybe, but spiritually not. I think that's beautifully said. It's There's so much miraculous beauty around us that that yeah. brings that it's it's almost it's a loving act for you to take the time to appreciate yeah. it now and just soak it in the fact that you can't predict a sodding thing even five seconds ahead should should tell people that this ain't just random chaos this ain't just a big bang this ain't just molecules interacting this is something bigger. And the more you become aware through having near-death experiences, struggling, going to hell. I mean, I read a meme on um, Instagram. I live by Instagram memes. They, they guide me life. They're like my little Bible in a way. <laughs> um, one of them said, religion is for people who fear hell. And spiritualities for people who've been to hell. So I'm more spiritual than religious now. Let me ask you, you've mentioned calling the crisis line. You've mentioned speaking to your 
psychologist. Yeah. And I don't know if there are more. So it's, I feel like when you've been through hell, like you say, when life hits you and it's got you down on your ass, shall we say, you have the courage, because I think it takes courage to reach out and have someone help you get back up. I've never really asked for help. I've got a thing about asking for help. I really resent myself having to ask for help for anything. Because when I lost my parents, I was in a position where I had no choice. There was no help for me. And I was in a terrible situation for years and years with no help. I was even homeless for a year and I had no one. So um, that built up in me a kind of forceful desire not to ask for help whatever happens to me because it was never there so it was just humiliation it was just sadness to reach out and be rejected so that made me feel now you know when i wanted help and people wouldn't even do it to save my life now i'll do it on my own i won't ask for help i mean i ask for help on computers because i'm old school i mean you know iPhones and all this sort of thing. It's like a new language to me. So if I need something posted on Instagram or typing up or something, I'll I'll bum someone some herbal things or money or something to do it for me. And um, that's how I get things done. But on the whole, I always pay for the help I get. People look surprised at me. I'll say, can you type this up for me? I'll give you a fiver. And they'll say, you, you're on the dole. You can't afford it. I don't mind doing it for free. And I'll insist because I don't want help for free. I don't want it. It would make me feel uncomfortable, traumatic. No, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that's going to resonate with probably a lot of people where we can ask for little things, but I think the more powerful thing is this idea that when I've been at the lowest point or when I've been at the time where I needed help, mm. no one gave me help and I got through that. So almost why should I ask yeah. for help now that this is nothing compared to that? Exactly. That's another aspect, of course, like nothing really phases me where I need to ask for help other than computers. You know, any any other help, where it, whether it be antisocial behaviour or deadlines or grafting or anything, I can do all that. It's, it's just, yeah. You know, I mean, I, there's not much, other than computers, there's nothing I really need help with. I mean, I've learned, I've been on the dole for so long, so they kind of wrote me off because of the nature of what I did when they sectioned me indefinitely, they wrote me off. So, you know, I've had to go from being written off and losing job, job, car, house, girlfriend, everything. And I've kind of scrambled my way up to being here now, which some people on, on a Babylon basis will think, well, he's on the dole and he's not got a bird and um, he can't operate a computer. What kind of achievement is that? But on a non-Babylon level, I'm writing poems that moves barmaids to tears in places where I'm reading. And they're the audience I'm really aiming at and things like that. And then you think, well, look at what I've achieved. Maybe I have really achieved something just by being alive and not being in survival mode after all that, when I could have ended up in prison or dead very easily, um, is a miracle in itself again. And Steve, um, do you have people, do you surround yourself? I mean, obviously you've got the relationship with your pen, which is, you know, so close to, um, to your chest do you also have people that around you that are there as a support network for you 
have a social support network. I, I crave company. I'm not great in my own company. Possibly because I haven't got a great deal of good memories to ponder on when I'm on my own. So that obviously makes being on your own a bit more difficult. So I crave company sometimes. So I have a set of people who were quite happy to visit me, socially distanced, of course, and um, chat to me and have a drink with me and chill with me. But I don't really have a best friend or close friends. I have friends, associates, acquaintances, neighbours, people I must deal with, and that's it. But the friends that I call friends... They're reasonably loyal. They're, I get on very, I'm very relaxed and comfortable with them. And we don't judge each other. And that, so that works for me. Amazing. amazing. The, only, the, the only reason why I was asking is, um, I know every, everyone's different at the end of the day. And one thing you said previously is that um, I would, I personally would never ask anyone for help whatsoever. Yeah. But um, I've, one thing I've started to learn in the past few years is the people that are dear and close to me, I've learned to kind of not just be selfless in terms of helping them out, but also them being there for me to, you know, help and support and learn and without, because it's always that thing of that if I ask if I ask you to do something, then oh you've got one over me, or yeah. I owe you something, which so, I totally. So it's like a form of debt slavery. Of, it's like it's like a subtle form of debt slavery with some people. Definitely, definitely agree. And I think for for me, it's that's one thing that's really helped me back, even in a lot of situations, relations, and things like that. But as time has gone on, I've learned how to be first of all, have the right people around where it's not seen as a debt. Everything is done selflessly and yeah. with each other and we create that kind of environment. And I think that's like a rare commodity um, to kind of have. I'm not saying everyone should go out and do that, but that's my own personal experience that yeah. I've seen. Um, and what's your relationship with, you know, your siblings as well? Uh, I that's one of the moot points I'd rather not talk about. Okay. I, have, I have a very difficult relationship with my siblings. Very, very difficult. I respect that. I totally respect that. Um, I don't even know why fully. Maybe it's because I got all the love and they got all the practical skills. I don't know. Maybe it's resentment in me for getting all the love. I don't know. But it's never worked out and it never will. Maybe if I'm rich and famous, you might want to know me, but I don't, I'm not bothered. I shouldn't say that. I do love them, and if someone came at them with a knife, I'd stand between it. But I, I wouldn't really hold, I couldn't really hold an intimate 10 minute conversation with my brother or sister. But if someone came with a knife at them, I'd jump in and protect them. So that's how it is. You know, I read a meme on um, Instagram where it said, um, I wouldn't lend me brother me charger, but I'd give him me kidney. Amazing. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> wow. Are you are you the oldest, youngest? Youngest. Youngest. Youngest and black sheep. Oh, is that a racist term, black sheep? I don't know. If we looked at maybe its history or how it was yeah. brought about but i mean it's a observation if we're just looking at a flock of sheep perhaps yeah but um i think when you highlight the black sheep and you give it those attributes or characteristics of yeah. being a bad sheep just yeah. purely because it has black wool yeah. and i think yeah some people would use it as that and Obviously, that's how it's then become. Well, pardon me for using a racist term. <laughs> well, you weren't using it on yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> nah, so sibling relationships are often more complicated. Look, and... like you don't choose your siblings, and they know more about you than most people, but it doesn't mean you want to go for a drink in a bar with them. Yeah. 
I mean, we're all very different people. Well, all, we're yeah. all individual people anyway. Yeah. And yeah. So who we get on with is who we get on with as such. I think what I wanted to ask even both of you almost was if we change the term from help to support and advice, does that change your perception or view of it? Men, I'm not happy with the term mentoring because I did a course on mentoring. Whilst it was incredibly enlightening and educating, I felt like the actual rules of engagement were quite restrictive. And I did a course in counselling and I found, I found the concept of expecting someone to give everything about themselves and you give nothing back about yourself to be a bit superior, not really balanced. So I wasn't happy with the counselling. And then I did a drugs counselling course and I was the best in the class because I'd had experience of most of the drugs we were talking about. But I had to resign from it because he insisted that cannabis was as bad as crack. Whereas my experience told me that the thing that stopped me using crack was moving to cannabis and made me more sociable and far less antisocial. So I thought, if you, you're an intelligent adult who knows about drugs and you're telling me I've got to say that cannabis is as bad as crack, then you're not for me. So I... Uh, uh, the support networks have really made me a bit cynical. How so? Well, because of that. Because yeah. there's no balance in counselling. You reveal everything, I tell you nothing. I'm in charge, you're not. That's not a relationship. Counselling, cannabis is not as bad. It's a herb, it's not even a drug. So that's rubbish. And, and all, you know, all the support networks is... There's, there's no room for instincts in any support network. And to truly care, caring is an instinct. Guidance is like an instinct. So to say that you've got to read a rule book and not veer from it in any way, they might as well get a robot to do the counselling job. Mm. I mean, that's, that's an interesting perspective where... My view on counseling has sort of always been this idea that you give people the space to speak and all you do is basically listen and not even really advise, just throw yeah. back what they're saying. So it's yeah. very much a, you have these thoughts when you're by yourself. And I also, I, to that said, I also do, would like to hear more about your insight or perspective having gone through all these things. I know we sort of, skimmed yeah. over like when you say you sectioned like yeah most people perhaps haven't had that experience they wouldn't know what that really means so i would yeah. like to go into that but to the point of counseling i i saw it as it's a rare time for most of us that we have the opportunity to speak hopefully unfiltered if you can mm. grow that amount of trust and they say perhaps the method could use refinement, but I, I feel like most people don't have the space where they can just let loose and someone else just listens for the most yeah. part. I think that is a powerful thing. It might not always work. Like say you've got to obsess or whether, and it depends what you're dealing with. Yeah. I think very much, um, and even to the point of, well, I'm, I'm assuming if it's drug counseling, it's going to be, Every, you, you have to put everything in the, shall we say, the bad box. Yeah, yeah. If you take yeah, one yeah. thing out. Yeah. Medication, good to... box, drugs, bad box. Yeah, yeah. And we know that's not absolutely yeah. the truth. Whereas when you've lived the experience, the perception is very yeah. different. Um, and I think on that lived experience side of things, like I know we've spoken about some of the professionals who you might have engaged with and all this, but what was the experience of actually being sectioned like or or when you're in, going through these periods in your in your life like you, the first thing when they say what they don't actually section you the very the very 
God, I don't want to, I hate being critical, but some things make me angry. They're very sly about it. They say, would you consider coming into hospital for an assessment, voluntary, Steve? And I say, of course not. I love me freedom, all words to that effect. So they will say, well, if you don't agree to come in voluntary, we will section you. So I will say, what happens if I walk out now and go home? The police will come to your home and take you to the hospital. Okay, I'll come in voluntary then. That's how it works. It's endemic, that kind of attitude in authorities of dealing with things. So once you get sectioned and they finally tick the boxes and say, you're knackered for six months, mate. Your first words are OMG, of course. Who's going to feed me cockatiel? How am I going to enjoy me, let's say, late night pleasures? Um, how am I going to have me freedom? How am I going to see me? And all that. And it all comes in. But then once you once you get over the first day, you get in the rhythm of being constrained and confined and having to ask permission for a cigarette like a little kid. And after a bit, you know, you even start to enjoy it. As you get weller, you've made a lot of friends. The counselling comes from your patients, not the nurses. And you get build up these little relationships, which you rarely continue out of there. But it's like being a prisoner, you know, you have a cellmate, it's like that. So you build up these little relationships, you have little joints out of the window when the nurses aren't looking, and you drink alcohol pop so they can't smell it on your breath. And it's a bit like a sort of carry-on cold it sort of thing. And um, it can be quite fun as you get better. But, you know, it's not something I'd like to do permanently. You've gone on mute, I think. I didn't hear you. Just going to ask, um, thanks for giving us your experience of being sectioned and... How long was you sectioned for one? The first one was an indefinite one, which really did fucking frighten me. That was the one when my dad died after my mum had died. That really did frighten me. I don't like admitting I'm afraid of nothing, but that frightened me. Um, what was it about that that frightened you so much? Indefinite frightened me. Right. I mean, if they'd said 10 years, you know, at least you can focus on 10 years, but indefinite is frightening. Um, but after that, what is, after that, a lot of things that people would find traumatic are water off a duck's back to me. What are the things that, Sorry to jump in, Ray. No, I was just—I was—I was just going to ask, um, and that was, again, an, an unveiling of resilience for you going through that, those different sectioning processes. Yeah. And what brought on the other sectioning? Well, I've—I've I've been in hospital. I've been either voluntary or sectioned in hospital approximately six or seven times in. Maybe a bit more, probably about six or seven in, I'd say about 20 years. So I don't know if that's a good record or bad or indifferent. But um, yeah, if you can't change something, you just change your perspective, don't you? You know, I mean, I've got this way. Because I, I, I haven't been brutalised in life, because, I'm, you know, I'm writing poems. If you're brutalised, it can be hard to write a poem. So I believe that I haven't been brutalised by life, but I have had some rather brutal situations to survive from. No, um, you pretty much answered answer okay. the questions. So, you know, thank you very much for that. appreciate that. 
Now, I was going to ask, because you mentioned in there that a lot of things that, let's say, would break other people or would really uh, knock them for six a water off a duck's back for you. Yeah. So I, I got that image of like the straw that breaks the camel's back. So yeah. what are perhaps the small things that most people don't notice that maybe for you actually do because you, you can handle the big things are there maybe the little things well you... it's the little things that i get joy from that's the mm. secret to life the real joy to life is not in the million pound mansion or celebrity status or a porsche the real things are in the tiny little things that just pop up out of nowhere and give your heart a little flutter whether it be a smile from a beautiful jogger, it could be a bee playing about in the flowers, it could be a puppy at a friend's home, it could be a, a girl that you haven't met for ages sitting down and having a... All these little things. It could be a bargain in a charity shop. It could be finding something that you've been looking for for five years. All these are the real joys in life. The joys aren't the big things. The joys are in, you know, I mean, there is an expression that the devil is in the detail, but the devil may be in the detail, but the beauty is in the moment. Thank you for listening to Men Talk Ubuntu podcast and being a valued member of our community. Remember to subscribe to our YouTube, Instagram, and other social media now for access to our latest updates. DM us and let us know what your mental health is on a scale of one to five. Thank you. Heaven is the millisecond you're in right now. Right now in this millisecond, for me, maybe for him, there is no war. There is in this moment, in this environment, there is no war, there is no torture, there is no abuse, there is no children going hungry, nothing. Right in this millisecond, none of that exists. And that's where heaven lies. Nice, nice. That's right as well to that Milton, John Milton saying, I like that. What do you think stops most people from lifting the veil, shall we say, and seeing that fear the moments fear i mean everyone's got fear fear i once saw an interview with a bloke who climbs up buildings without a harness i thought i want to know what this guy's got to say He's, mm. he can teach me something and the interviewer said don't you ever get afraid thinking he never gets afraid obviously if he's climbing up a skyscraper we can't you think that guy's got no fear and he said of course I get afraid. I use it as an advisor. It does not obsess me. It advises me. So you can't, you, the mistake is to eliminate fear. Death or fear, whichever you want to call it, death or fear, is an advisor. It's over your shoulder, a couple of metres behind. If you glance quick enough, you can see it. And you've got to bear that in mind and it gives your actions a certain instantaneousness, a certain urgency. It advises you. But if you're obsessed with it and stare at it and turn around and look at it for ages, it will make you shit your pants and shake your legs. So you you know, that bloke was right. He taught me. I didn't come to that conclusion, but I wanted to. Fear as an advisor. I tried to eliminate fear. I tried to be fearless in situations where you'd be stupid not to, to not fear. And then when he said that in that interview, I said, no, let it advise you. That's the way. Yes. You know, an epiphany moment. said uh, when speaking of epiphany moments so i was curious what sparks you starting to write a poem and how do you know when you've got one is that feelings you get or is it 
this is where it gets into very spiritual things. I don't even feel I even write them really. They seem like ready written in the ether and I'm they're just merely being dictated to me. That's how it genuinely feels. I will think about all week. I write a poem every two to three months. So for those two to three months, I will be wondering about thinking, oh, that's interesting. I'll write a poem about that. Oh, he said that. I might write a poem about that. Oh, that happened. That's making a good poem. And then one day I'll be just sat down at midnight enjoying a herbal dinner. And uh, suddenly... I'll start writing on a topic. And I do this a lot and it doesn't end up as a poem. But if I write five lines or more immediately, I know it's going to turn into a poem. So I stick with it. I don't abandon it. If I've got five lines straight off, rhyming and everything, then I'm with it. And it just takes me then. And I, I write these poems in about five hours which seems a long time, but, you know, it's a bit of changing and chopping, but they come out pretty uniquely made as they are. And it, you don't really need much adjustment. So I don't, in a way, I find it hard to feel a pride about me poems because they're very little effort to me. I don't feel like I grab for them. It's almost like pure inspiration that comes out. You're channeling something else. Yeah, it's like channeling. It is very like channeling, yeah. Is there a poem by another author or poet that for you know, gives you hope or hooks you or it's one well, of your favorites? Or... I've got a favorite poet. I've got a few. I mean, I'm, there's a poet I could recommend you listen to. It'd be great if you could play it now. But if you can't, you can't. Maybe you could play it in the edit. There's a lovely little poem about relationships by a Scottish poet who died about 15, 20 years ago. And his name is Ivor Cutler. I don't know if any of you have heard of him. He's the best poet I've ever heard in my whole life. And he's very obscure. And he puts it to music. And he's got a song, he did a song called um, Be uh, Beautiful Cosmos. And it's about a relationship of two old women. I'd love you to hear it. Yeah, I don't think we can play oh. it because of copyright and okay. all that sort of thing. But, but yeah. basically, it's, he's, he's got a line in it where he goes, he's talking about having a meal with people and with one person, a soulmate, and how, like, they're, they're both in a separate cosmos, but they're not. And he's got one line when he goes, I open my mouth, then shut it. And he's describing having a conversation. Is I open my mouth, then shut it. We have a beautiful cosmos. That kind of reductive, expansive way of seeing it. Mm. I mean, really, I really would love you to listen to it when you get a chance. So that's that's my favourite poem, really. But I like John Cooper Clark. I mean, mainly, my poems were mainly influenced by music. I mean, I used to write letters to John Lennon. And then, ironically, I got a like by Sean Lennon on one of my poems 30 years after writing to his old man. So that's nice. And I get influenced by groups like R.E.M. and the Waterboys and Chronics and Bob Marley. And all, you know, I get influenced mainly from... I, I, I found poetry boring, to be honest. You know, I did poetry at school and I thought, can't you just say what they're thinking? You know, it's like different from a novel. I wasn't ready for poetry. Some of them poets I did at school, I'm not ready for now at 57. Maybe it's because of shit or maybe it's because I'm not good enough. I don't know. But the ones I was taught at at school, I can't connect with even now. I think. 
poetry is an art form and i think like with all art some of it resonates some of it doesn't yeah. some of it moves you and yeah, yeah. You in a way others don't well bob marley said about his lyrics which i mean his lyrics have influenced me he said you know my songs you can you can listen a little baby can be listening to it or an old grandma and they'll both understand it and i've always thought that you get a lot of poets who will confuse and and be avoiding saying what they're trying to put across being vague being overly clever and all this sort of thing and pretentious and i just think the point of communication first is to sod in communicate not baffle so if you're baffling people with your poems you're not really doing your job my poems don't baffle i get crackers asking me for copies I get junkies asking me for copies. I get gangsters asking me for copies. I get poets asking me for copies. I get all sorts of people that would never think like poem being moved by my poems. And I'm not saying that as a boast. All I'm saying about it is that I'm not trying to baffle anyone. I'm not showing off my education. I'm not using words of ten syllables where one will do. So I'm communicating effectively. I'm being poetic, hopefully. I think gained a lot of insights and shall i end on a poem then are you ending now or we've, got, we've got we've got to remember the surprise questions for oh yes of course. oh yeah i forgot we had a surprise <laughs> i thought the surprise was my cheese sandwich <laughs> <laughs> that's the latest surprise <laughs> whoa i need a cheese sandwich too <laughs> uh, we'll do the quick five quick questions it's only like three yeah and then yes it would be amazing if you could end on the well i will end on the poem i will at the end i will end on a poem that i wrote when i was last in a psychiatric unit which was approximately three two three years ago and i wrote it when i was coming out of my illness to put on the wall to give any patients coming in confused, shitting themselves, fearful, suicidal, hope that they're in a safe place and that they're going to be all right. So it's one of my most positive poems. So, I mean, despite my life being full of ups and downs, I'd, I'd like, I have always, end, I, all my poems end up on a note of hope. I don't take you down dark corridors and leave you with no way out in the poem. So, you know, I'll leave you with a way out at the end with my most positive poem. We'll hit you with a quick one. Yeah, hit me with the quick questions. First. Steve, what's the best thing about being black? Uh, dignity. Expand on that. I don't know. <laughs> black people's sense of dignity. What makes the black struggle so achingly beautiful as well as tragic and cruel is the amount of dignity that you see displayed in the struggle. I mean, the media may concentrate on the odd looter and the odd this and the odd that, but what you see when you when you see when you see a, a brave person of colour speaking with dignity about his struggle and what's really going on and what needs to be stood up against, it's it's achingly beautiful. Amazing. Amazing answer. Um, next question is, um, who taught you how to shave? Um, I have a beard. I actually, my beard's very funny. 
I grew it as a disguise when I was about to get caught by the authorities and section. I ran away and grew a beard as a disguise. And when I got to hospital, I never shaved it off. And that was like 26 years ago. And I've never shaved it off once, except for once for six months. I've not shaved it off and I only grew it as a disguise. So no one... I taught myself how not to shave. <laughs> An original answer. I'd expect nothing less. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, what do you wish more men talked about? Um, aggression. Mm. I mean, I'll, I mean, Again, it's tempting me to be negative, but a lot of my male friends, I tend to tolerate rather than enjoy the company. I enjoy the company of women very, very much. And if they're pretty, it makes it so much more exquisite. Although all women are pretty, there's no such thing as an ugly woman to me in any way, not just physically. But that may be naive, but that's just a... You know, it may be because I lost my mother at an early age, so I put all women on a pedestal. But I just, I, I, I find myself tolerating men's company rather than enjoying it so much. So, and it's partly the aggression and the so-called banter, like, yeah, give us that. Sit there, only joking, mate. I'll smash your face in. Only joking, mate. All that. I'm sick of it. It's just stupid and. It's immature and stupid. So I think they need to really talk about aggression. And there is a place for aggression because one of the jobs as a male is to make room for the female to express herself. And if someone is oppressing your queen, then you may need to be aggressive to make room for her and stop that. So in certain circumstances, I'm willing to understand aggression may be necessary, but it should be a very last resort, not the first one. Amazing answer. Makes me think of the lion and the lioness, of how you always have to be the dominant one to protect your queen and make sure she is wearing her crown right all the time yeah and no, no one can defy it to, yeah you know come against her i mean i learned that i mean i always felt it but i felt i felt it was a justified feeling i'd always felt like my girlfriends were my queens and where a lot of me english friends let's say were, were more like piece of meat women you know, like it was a piece of meat, like, we'll do this to her, we'll do, I did this to her last night, and all that sort of thing. And I, I mean, I've been through that stage, I've been through most stages, but I come out the other side, and I, I really, whether it's putting them on a pedestal and being unrealistic, or treating them as your queen, that's what I do, and I felt justified when I, I mixed with people of colour, when I got into the sort of moss-eyed, wally-range, Hume kind of crowd when I was taking crack. And I learned that they have that kind of similar attitude, that kind of, you know, when you listen to the songs even, like She's Royal and Your Majesty and all this sort of thing. And I thought, my God, I'm not alone in that attitude. And I hadn't really experienced that attitude amongst my English friends. Shall I find me a positive poem to end on? This won't bring tears of weeping, it'll bring tears of joy. My favourite author once said, you should never, you should only weep tears of joy. Because Steve finds that. Yeah, talk over me while I'm I'm finding it. I found it. Perfect.
I want to say thank you, uh, of course, for sharing so openly, honestly, and deeply, I suppose, your whole journey from a beginning that most of us cannot really imagine up until a phase of adulthood, none of us can, most of us, again, cannot probably imagine. And I think it, there's power in sharing how you can go through all these things and still find beauty and meaning in life yeah. and still want to leave a positive imprint on the yeah. world. And I think it's also just to speak about all these things that most people would find challenging to yeah. think about, let alone share with anyone else. Mm -hmm. So I hope that that message is empowering to whoever else is listening. And I mean, I wouldn't want anyone to think up on ending up a miserable old get. I mean, basically, I'm loving life. I know, I know there's a lockdown. I know there's COVID. I know some people are saying we're being pushed towards dystopia. But I'm having the time of my life, reading me poems, doing Zoom, doing live poems, mixing with squatters, socially distanced, of course, and all these things, and going to parks and reading out in public and meeting artists and poets and creatives, being in nature and all that, you know. I, I mean, the interview, I did concentrate on the difficult side of my life. But what I want to say is that when you've been watered sparingly, like I said in the poem, the roots grow and reach the water. They grow strong, they grow thick, they grow solid. So I've been watered highly sparingly, which some people would see as brutality, but I see it as making my roots very independent and strong. So, you know, I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm living... Some people... What, what people have been forced to live now by losing the business and all these things and the car and all that. I've not had a holiday for over 10 years, mate. I've been on the dole for 20 years. You can't throw anything at me that I've not already been through, really. So, you know, welcome to my world, I'm saying to a lot of people who are being shaken down by the government and having the pockets emptied. Welcome to my world. You can get joy from it. Don't see it as a, the bitter ending. See it as an opportunity to find new skills, new beliefs, new versions of what's beautiful, new relationships. You know, have a relationship behind the barricades, in the bunker, whatever. That's how I'm seeing it. But this uh, this all this all end it nicely. So this is what I wrote when I come out of my section three years ago. I think I was section. I can't remember when involuntary, but I wrote it and the, the nurses loved it and they pinned it up and printed it up and asked me if they could use it. So you know they did like it. So it's called Sunshine After the Rain. It's nice to be nice, most mothers used to say. What a great philosophy to start the day. But also remember to be nice to you too, because that's a broken spirit's favourite glue. Not everyone in this life will be fair or kind, but don't let their fuckery also leave you blind. To see the good in as much as you can. That ain't stupid, brethren. It's an effing good plan. Then one day very soon the clouds begin to lift. From the rubble in your heart, the gold starts to sip. As the heart's treasures shine, take on board this little tip. Try feeling grateful so self-hate can't take a grip. Be grateful for a plateful or your bed and a room and observe life moving from static towards Zoom. Then allow your gratitude to become your addiction and compassion and kindness your new predilection. I promise you now 
you'll find shelter from your storm. Then soon will come a rainbow to welcome a new dawn. Give yourself a big hug. Tell the world you weathered your storm. It won't always be blue skies, but you've learned to stay loving and warm. And that's viewable on my Instagram site, party time now, Instagram site, which is at Steve Japper Brown, all one word. I was going to let you go, Steve, but I'm curious about Jaffa. Oh, yes. It's a very sad story, one called Jaffa. I'll condense it. I had a cat for 15 years, two cats. One went feral and ran away. He was a bully cat. The other cat was a Morrissey cat, very sensitive, very poetic, and very clingy. And I got sectioned when it was about 15. And it was snowing, it was Christmas. So they sectioned me. So I gave me keys to me mate to feed him. And there was a cat flap so he could go in, you know, and he'd feed him and all that. And my mate kept coming to me saying, he won't eat his food now, you're not there. He's not touching it, the bowl's always full. And this went on for weeks and weeks, hardly eating the food. And then it wouldn't go in, it just sat on the doorstep in the snow waiting for me. It wouldn't go in through the cat flap and it froze to death waiting for me on the doorstep. And when I come out of my section and went home, there was a cardboard box on my mat with a note saying, found him on the doorstep waiting for you dead. And Jaffa was in the box dead. And I cried and I cried. A cat doesn't, a dog does that, a cat does not. That cat waited in the snow, refused to eat, refused to go in through the cat flap for his warmth because it missed me so much. So that's why I've got the middle name Jaffa. It's a powerful thing. Like, I think it's speaking to that notion of legacy that you touched on so although the cat's there it's filled you with love and to the very end it's demonstrating its love for you and you carry that with a legacy and yeah. i genuinely hope that your poetry does that for you and for other people and highly encourage anybody who's heard you like it, it was a powerful experience for me to hear you recite some of these poems and there's a connection, like you say, to the cosmos, to the whatever you want to call it. You know, great beyond. Great beyond the consciousness, it's there. And if you have the opportunity, uh, well, follow Steve at Steve Jaffa Brown on Instagram. And when he puts down that he's going to be somewhere, you owe it to yourself to connect at this level and be yeah. in a room when people hear some of these words. And it's got some readings on there as well. But, man. Thank you for that. Thank you. We're truly honoured to to have had you um, and to have shared such insightful journey and story of your life and more importantly, um, unveiling the the veil of, you know, your life. And also uh, for me, it's definitely been learning there's a lot of things I've learned from you and I'm going to, you know, take that and put that within my life as well. So I really appreciate that. Thank you very much. There'll be sunshine after the rain. Oh, yeah. definitely. Yeah. It's nice to be nice, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thank you very much. I've enjoyed the interview, but as with a lot of people during COVID, linear time, days, months, mean F all to me. So how long have I been talking for? I have no idea. The right amount of time. Roughly. I'd like to know in figures, just as an interest. Uh, about probably a little over two hours. Seems like about an hour. Flies in the <laughs> front. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> 
All right. Uh, Thank you very much. It's thank been you very much. Enjoyable. Uh, absolute pleasure and an honor. Thank you very much. Thank you. Take care, guys. Take care. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating. Don't forget to follow, like, share, and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Subscribe to our latest episode and listen to any you missed. And tune in next episode. Take care. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating. Don't forget to follow, like, share, and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Subscribe to our latest episode and listen to any you missed. And tune in next episode. Take care.